This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. In that first hardly noticed moment in which you wake, coming back to this life, from the other, more secret, movable, and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you begin your plans. What you can plan is too small for you to live. What you can live wholeheartedly will make plans enough for the vitality hidden in your sleep. To be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live in your true inheritance. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited from another and greater night than the one from which you have just emerged. Now, looking through the slanting light of the morning window toward the mountain presence of everything that can be, what urgency calls you to your one love? What shape waits in the seed of you to grow and spread its branches against a future sky? Is it waiting in the fertile sea? in the trees beyond the house, in the life you can imagine for yourself, in the open and lovely white page on the writing desk. This is a poem called What to Remember When Waking by David White. And I gave a, a talk recently on the fourth Bodhisattva vow, which we will chant soon. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. And I was speaking of, of belonging and a feeling of um, an inherent rightness, a feeling a part of, an intrinsic part of this world. And how this how this feeling, this sense of rightness, relates to the unattainability of the Buddha way. And I wanted to to continue that theme because we are a people so focused on attainment, on getting rather than being. And it is so often what we base our self-worth in. Whether that attainment is power or fame, love, admiration, Having things in our world, for some, means that we've made it, you know, we're successful. And it doesn't really change just because we come into spiritual practice. All of us, at some point, all of us get caught up in all the things that you can attain. The robes, their many colors and their associated meanings. The Raksu, the, the, the Buddhist... Um, representation symbol of having taken the precepts, the titles, you know, imagined perks. Thinking, you know, that the more we attain, certainly the more spiritual we will become. 
the more enlightened, the more protected we will be from our suffering. And it can be such a disappointment when we find that spiritual practice doesn't really conform to that usual framework. We want it to, because it, it's, it, then it would make sense. It's um, understandable. We want it to be like everything else in our lives, and at the same time, we don't. Because if it were like everything else in our lives, then we wouldn't need it. Then things would be working. We wouldn't need it. So we know that it can't be the same. But then when we um, face a, a kind of uh, block, or it feels like practice isn't exactly working, and we doubt. We doubt practice. Maybe this enlightenment thing is just, just, just a hoax, or a carrot you know, that somebody made up to make us sit. Or worse, worse, what if it works, but what if it's not for me? What if it doesn't work for me? What then? You know, where does that leave me? If practice won't solve our problems, then what is it for? And if I feel my sense is that it isn't working, is it, is it my fault? Is it something that I'm doing, not doing? But can we hear, as White says, that we're not troubled guests here or anywhere? Can we hear that we're not accidents, but heirs you know, to our humanity and it's all its infinite, infinite potential? Hogan just sent me this email yesterday saying by David Barry, and I, I didn't write it down, so I don't have the words exactly. It was saying something like, humanity will never fulfill its... If, if you had to say in one word why humanity will doesn't and probably will never fulfill its potential, the word is meetings. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree. Can we not only hear that we're not accidents, but trust it? Trust that we are threads, threads in the, in the fabric of reality and this, this tapestry that is our world. So we are necessary. We're intrinsic to, this, uh, to the picture that this tapestry shows. And I was also, in, in my talk, I was, um, I was speaking about swimming and, and um, what it is for me. Very much a feeling of, of rightness, of belonging in, in water. And somebody afterwards reminded me of Diana Nyad, whom you may know, uh, swam from, from Cuba to Florida, 110 miles. Uh, without stopping. It took her 54 hours, and it was her fifth attempt. Uh, she had been trying since she was in her 20s. She's, she was then, uh, three years ago, she was 64. And what was even more extraordinary was that she did it without a cage, a shark cage. So she was, in a sense, unprotected in waters that were also infested with jellyfish that she said have, have the most poisonous sting of any animal in 
the ocean. And so she had to wear this mask to protect her face from being stung. And she said, you know, uh, at one point, I watched her, one of her talks, and, and she said, you know, I, I really feel at the prime of my life. And all the women in the audience cheered. And I thought to myself, yeah, but she doesn't know that when you're awake, when you live your life awake, you know, every moment is really, you can even say it's the prime of your life. Every moment is fully, fully your life. Every moment is that full presence. And I remember when I first read the story, I, I read the New Yorker profile pretty much right after she, she did this. I remember thinking to myself, you know, how extraordinary, but also, you know, it's like all that effort. And so, so you swam from Cuba to Florida, you know, so, so what? And, uh, and, then I, and then I heard her speak. And, you know, it just made me think that there are those who, there are those who are just unwilling to stand in the sidelines of their lives. They're willing to fail and fail and fail. Everybody had told her, you can't do this. It's impossible. No, it, it, they didn't say, you can't do this. They said, this cannot be done. And she was going to try one more time. And her partner at one time, best friend, who has worked with her through all of these, um, through, through all the previous trials, said, you know, I don't think this can be done, but if you want to do it, I'll, I'll be there. I'll do this with you. And she did. So, so there are those who are willing to fail and fail because for them, you know, it's not in the, in the arriving. And, and they, they know you, you, you can even think of arriving without the stumbles and the missteps. Perhaps you could say for them, there isn't even failing. There is just living. There is just doing what they have to do, what they must do clearly. This was something she had to do. You know, and if we ever, ever doubt ourselves, and we think, I can't do this, and by this I mean this practice, or this my life, this a relationship, this my work, it might be helpful to remember there is another world in this world. And it does hold our inheritance. It holds each of our lives whole, whole and undivided, if we can only see it. Which really means you cannot fail. Right? You cannot fail at being you. And White speaks of that, that moment, that, that moment just between sleep and waking, that moment when you're, you're first coming into the world again. A moment of, of such tremendous possibility, I find. And that the moment we start making plans, that just narrows it down, there's, there's one or two avenues. And he's saying, wait, you know, there's, this, there's a moment just before where, where everything, everything is possible. Notice that moment that moment when the frighteningly honest world and everything else began, where we began. And the thing is, that world and that honesty is only frightening from the threshold. You know, if we're standing outside looking in, 
we're looking through the door and it's dark and we can't see clearly and even if we we can see something we don't know what it is then it can be frightening Shugen Sensei uh, often would speak of um, guards in the prisons, you know, the prison work that we do, how um, afraid, how threatened they would feel by the inmates sitting quietly, in a sense, doing nothing. How, how, how powerful that can be. And it can be frightening from the outside. From within, from within that world, it is neither frightening, nor honest, nor dishonest, nor anything else. I mean, it's not even a world. And yet, you know, there is a small opening. Actually, it's an enormous fissure. I mean, it's a gully, it's a valley. But from the outside, it just appears as a crack. Just enough to, to squeeze yourself through and and find, if you do, that there was in fact no wall, there was no barrier, but the one that you created in your mind. And it's not just that we're making things up, it's just that we see partially. We see partially things as they are, and often, because we don't like it, we create all these lines, we create all these boundaries. We feel safe, to some extent, within boundaries. And then we rail against them because we feel hemmed in. We feel constricted. And when you really begin to spend time with yourself, with your mind, in practice or any other way, you realize you know, we're such uh, interesting, contradictory, uh, suffering, suffering beings. A student said recently, we were doing a retreat, and she said, I don't remember what we were talking about, but she said she was waiting for her husband to pick her up. She, she was speaking about how she saw, how she creates her suffering, and she was uh, waiting for her husband to pick her up, and he was late, and it was snowing, and so she was freezing. And she was miserable, she was really in a funk. And so she was like, so I just stood in a puddle. So when he got there, you know, he would see how much she was suffering. It's almost as if she was saying, you know, if I'm gonna suffer, let me just do it right. <laughs> and how often, that's exactly, exactly what we do. Exactly what we do, like we throw ourselves into the puddle. A Brahmin once asked the Buddha, will all the world reach awakening, or half the world, or a third? I mean, you know, really, just, just tell me, how many? How many of us will become enlightened? And the Buddha didn't answer. And so Ananda, who was uh, concerned that the Brahmin might misinterpret the Buddha's silence, uh, took him aside, and he gave him an analogy. He said, imagine a fortress with a single gate. A wise gatekeeper would walk around the fortress and not see an opening in the wall big enough for even a cat to slip through. And because this gatekeeper is wise, he or she would realize that they can determine how many people would come into the fortress. But it did tell them that whoever came in would have to come in through the gate. So you wouldn't know how many 
will use the gate. But you know that they have to use it. They can't get in any other way. And someone asked me recently, you know, you don't, you don't really need Mu, do you? And, um, you know, for those of you who, who may not know, Mu is the first koan that a, that a student will sometimes work with, not necessarily. And it, it really deals with the nature of the self very directly, what the self is. But it's, uh, it's said, impenetrable. You can't figure it out. And so it's called a barrier gate. And I think he meant, you know, I don't really need this to see myself, do I? I mean, to, to see the absolute. It's not the only gate. And he was feeling a little impatient. And he thought he had seen it, actually. And I said, well, you know, I mean, the Buddha never worked on Mu. So in a way, is it necessary to realize yourself? No. But thousands, perhaps millions, of men and women have used it over the last 1,500 years as a gate, as a gate into the world where everything began, as a gate into the night greater than the one from which we have just emerged. And they've used it because it works. It's a skillful means. So I said, you know, you might. You might consider it, in fact, a skillful means. as a way to, to get yourself through that space, through that gate so that you can see that all, all along you were walking on an open field. There was no fence and there was no gate. But don't be too quick to dismiss it. I mean, if it was good enough for the great Master Zhao Zhou, perhaps it can be good enough for you. <clears throat> and so to enter, we must come through the gate. And the only way to do so is to put one foot in front of the other. But if with every step we're asking ourselves, how far is it? How far is it? How far is it? In, in a, in a, ironically, it, it feels as if it, it's moving farther and farther away. It's not, really, but because all of our energy is on arriving, we're not really focused on traveling. And it's destabilizing to come into practice and to hear that it's, in, in a sense, that it's open-ended, that this is your life. There is no end to how much you can see about yourself. I mean, it's the difference between doing a part of zazen where you're just sitting there waiting for it to end. And so half an hour feels like four hours, doesn't it? Or you can sit completely immersed in your breath, and then time, time disappears. It just goes by like that. And so you could say that very much a, a, um, an aspect of developing practice is to, to learn more and more how to be putting one foot in, in front of the other, to be focused on practicing rather than arriving, to focus on living. Somebody told me this story the other day, and I don't know if it's a true story, but uh, 
you know, a woman was, she changed doctors and she was going for her physical with a, with a new doctor. And she was in her 60s and the doctor said, you know, you're doing, you're doing very well, pretty well for your, for your age. And she was just a little concerned the way he, he said it. And so she said, well, but I mean, will I live until I'm 80? And he said, well, I mean, do you smoke? No, I don't. You know, the, the typical, the usual questions they ask you, you know, do you drink beer, wine, hard liquor? She said, no, no, and I, I really don't. And she said, no, I don't do drugs either. And he said, well, do you spend long hours in the sun, you know, playing golf or sailing or swimming? No. Do you do any kind of strenuous exercise, you know, lifting, running long distances, rock climbing? And he just keeps going through the list. Do you operate heavy machinery? Do landscaping, solar flights? And all of us just saying, no, I, I don't do any of these things. Do you gamble, drive fast cars, have a lot of sex? Do you travel to far-flung or exotic places? And she's like, no, no, I, I, I don't. I definitely don't. And then he looks at her and says, well, then why do you give a shit how long you live? <laughs> And it's true that we're sometimes afraid. I mean, we say we're afraid of death, but so often we're so afraid of living. We're afraid of living, and I'm not suggesting you do any other things on the list, but so often we're afraid of living, actually. Actually, that is the fear. The Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. And it says, you cannot do that. You cannot attain the Buddha way, and every day, do you realize that's what we're doing you know, when we're chanting? Every day we're saying, I'm going to do this. I vow to attain the unattainable. Every, every day I'm going to take another step, not knowing whether there will be ground there to meet me, but trusting somehow, at least this much, trusting that there will be something, that I will be held. Trusting that as I walk, the ground will meet me. And we were speaking during the Zen Essentials about that, that uh, line of Antonio Machado's poem, um, Caminante no hay camino, wayfarer, there's no way. You, you make your way as you're walking. What would it be like to live without fear? Which is a possibility for all of us human beings. That's what the Buddha said. That's what he found. What would it be like to not be afraid to live and not be afraid to die? Tibetan Buddhists, I've, I've read a number of teachers who just say it directly. They say all of practice is a preparation for death. And they're not saying, I don't believe that you're not living as you do that. But that is really preparing for, for this ultimate change. Tayyar the Chardin said, throughout my whole life, during every minute of it, the world has been gradually lighting up and blazing before my eyes until it has come to surround me, entirely lit up from within. I really like that quote. I think that's exactly right. It's a good way to describe the the experience of, of gradually stepping more and more into your life, the experience of waking up. And you cannot do it once. You cannot do it just once. 
So even this, this uh, young, young student who is working on Mu, I think in his mind is like, you, you, you cross the gate and that's it, you're, you're, you're there. You know, the rest is just kind of details. It's not like that. And it is because the Buddha way is unattainable that we can gradually see the world entirely being lit up from within. It's because the path has no end. And really, the world has always been lit up. It's just us that see that gradually. And some, a precious few, spend then the rest of their lives telling others what they've seen. As White says, making themselves visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. If we could, if we could understand and, and really accept that this path takes as long as it takes, and that for each one of us is different, because our, our, our karma, our history, our circumstances are so different. If we could really understand that, then we wouldn't plan our spiritual, spiritual journey as if it was a, a career. You know, I'll, I'll, in a month, more or less, you know, I'll have mastered my breath. And in about a year or so, give and take, a month or two, I will have seen through Mu. And then in 10 years, you know, I will finish this whole thing and, you know, maybe I'll teach and people will ask me for advice and life will be so great. And, and if that's not what you're interested in, we compare, we compare each other, each other's practice. I don't know how, I've done it. I've done it, I've told this story before of uh, when I was working, in fact, on Mu. And it felt to me like I had been working on it for a long time. And um, I was, at one point it became clear that one of my best friends at the time had passed through it, had seen it, and I hadn't. It was just before Sashin, I remember. And I was devastated because I sat, I mean, I couldn't physically have sat more and, or, or in my mind worked harder, which by the way was exactly part of the problem, but I didn't know it. And so I didn't feel that I could do more, and yet she had seen it and I hadn't. And I called my brother just devastated. And you know, just so you get a sense, my brother used to go to bed when I woke up. And he, you know, he loved Madonna and Dolce and Gabbana, and he was a fashion photographer. I mean, he couldn't have been less interested in Zen. <laughs> But he was interested in me. He wanted to understand me. And I kept saying, you know, she's ahead of me and I work so hard and she's ahead of me. I mean, I, I don't understand, you know. And you know, he listens for a while and he just very innocently says, but, but I thought that was not what it was about. I'm like, oh, uh, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I've, I've been there for sure. And yet <laughs> what we don't know is we're, we're actually, we're not even comparing, I mean, you're, we're not comparing the same thing. I mean, for one person it could take, you know, 10 years. For the other person it could be a few months because each one of us has to walk our own path. And so all that energy, all of that energy, all of that attention put on what everybody else is doing, you could be putting into practicing just living your life. 
You are not an accident amidst other accidents, White says. You were invited from another and greater night than the one from which you have just emerged. I think of this often. You know, none of us this morning came here by accident. This morning or the first time you came. None of us found our way here by chance. We were, in fact, each invited from another greater night. By who? And what is? What is that greater night? The koans so often refer to the traveler walking in the middle of the night. There's no moon, there's no stars, there's no light to see by. Diana Nyad was speaking, I mean, she was swimming in pitch, pitch blackness. She says, you, you've never seen dark that dark. She couldn't see her hand in front of her, her face. She couldn't see the boat. They, they, the only way her team knew where she was by the, was the slap of her strokes on the water because the, the light attracts sharks and jellyfish. And it is necessary, this darkness. That's why the many hours of Zazen. It is the only way to get to the light. The only way. You have to, you have to immerse yourself in this ocean so deeply that you don't know what is up and down. You don't know where your body begins, where it ends. You don't know where there's sky and what's water. This is why Zazen has to be solitary. I mean, we're doing it together. We're facing in the same direction, actually. But each one of us has to attend that greater night. Each one of us has to come to that seat alone and experience, experience for ourselves that greatness. And the fact is, is that we can. We can, despite the doubts, despite the false starts, despite all the detours, apparent detours. Every one of us, every single one of us is able to walk through that gate. And it is truly irrelevant whether it takes you 20 years or three months. I wish someone had told me that years ago. Actually, I wouldn't have believed them. But I'm telling you, and you can believe me or not, that's okay. But it is true that it, it is irrelevant, in fact, how long it takes to arrive. Because when you do, you realize, oh, you, you got nowhere. You'd arrive the moment you opened your eyes into this world. And actually much earlier, much earlier than that. And you still have to go through this journey. We all have to, as I said, not just to travel it, but to find our own path, to find our own path. Rebecca Solnit says, leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That is where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from, and where you will go. And I think maybe the most important part of this quote is leave the door open. We close so many doors. So many doors out of fear, I think, out of fear of what we don't know. We decide we can't before we've even set off. We decide we won't because, you know, probably wasn't even worth it anyway.
but what you can plan is too small for you to live. I mean, thank God enlightenment is not what we imagined, because what we imagine is so small. We imagine so much, and still it is so small. And so at a certain point, we have to, we have to abandon the plans. At a certain point, we have to trust that that small opening into the new day is large enough for our dreams, large enough for us. And if you, you can't, if you don't, you're not able to believe that yet yourself, it's good, you know, it's good to have someone remind you. My partner will periodically ask me, and really at the most random moments, she'll just turn to me and say, you know, what, what do you dream of? And it keeps me awake. You know, it helps me to keep dreaming. And because when I get there, I realize, oh, that dream was too small. Let me dream a little larger or dream a different dream. And in this way, I don't run out of living. I never run out of living. Now, looking through the slanting light of the morning window toward the mountain presses of presence of everything that can be, what urgency calls you to your one love? What do you love? What do you love so urgently that it calls you? What will you regret not doing before you die is usually the way that I ask it of myself. I hope we're never afraid to ask that question, you know, what do I dream of? Because certainly from the perspective of, of Buddhism, you know, dreams are all our lives are made of, quite, quite literally. That is what our lives are. And so to ask periodically or often, what do I dream? What do I dream? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.